Hampton Sides um, lives in New Mexico. Um, he is, um, as I say, a man of uh, varied interests and has the ability um, to write about all those interests. Hampton Sides. Thank you. It's good to be here in, in Baltimore. Uh, years and years ago, I was a staff writer at Baltimore Magazine. Uh, got to know the city a little bit, but it's been a long, long time. It's been a very long time. And I'm, I'm glad you were persistent in getting me here. Uh, it, was my, it, was, it was the people at Random House that were dallying. If, if, they'd just gone, if you'd gone to me direct, I think I would have been here a lot quicker. I did grow up in Memphis, and I think it is um, one of the most time-honored uh, traditions for writers to want to go back to the place where they were born, the place where they grew up. In this case, I wanted to go back to the pivotal moment in the modern history of the, of the city where I was born. The King assassination is probably the most devastating, the most controversial, um, simply the biggest thing that has happened to my city. Uh, it certainly happened to the entire world. It certainly happened to the entire nation. But uh, Memphis experienced it in a very direct uh, profound way, which I think continues to this day. I think Memphis is still trying to figure out what does it mean, why did it happen there, what sort of uh, legacy did it leave, um, and I think that was what animated me and, and inspired me to go back to try to kind of figure this event out and um, reconstruct it, um, to, to look into the conspiracy theories that swirl around the case, to um, look into um, all the various characters uh, in Memphis that that led to King's arrival, um, the garbage strike that was going on in Memphis, um, the, the sort of racial polarization that, um, that led to King's arrival. Um, <clears throat> I grew up, um, growing up in Memphis, uh, it turned out that the very first writer that I met, first writer I'd ever met, um, was a, one of the great narrative historians. Uh, and I'm sure in some ways, large and small, he influenced me and kind of set me on this course writing narrative history. Uh, he was a great Civil War historian from the PBS documentary, uh, Shelby Foote, uh, who, of course, if, if you saw the documentary, you know, he, he sort of looks like a writer. He, he talks like a writer. Uh, he smells like a writer. Um, uh, he's deceased now, but uh, he was the first, first writer I ever met. And, and uh, in fact, um, his son, Huggy, and I, uh, we, the names are kind of strange in the Deep South, um, we were, uh, we were in a rock band together, and we tried to do essentially everything we could to prevent Shelby from finishing his 6,000-page trilogy of the Civil War. Because we were cranking up the Hendrix and the Pink Floyd, and uh, uh, Shelby would rap on the door and say in that amazing Delta accent of his, uh, you know, Huggy, shut that racket down. I'm working on Appomattox. And, uh, and we'd be like, yeah, right, Appomattox. What's Appomattox? <laughs> Um, and you know, it was many years later, after I graduated from college and did a series of interviews with him, that I, I came to realize just what he had been up to and, uh, and how amazing it was uh, that he stuck with this thing for 20 years. And um, I decided to, I was still trying to figure out what kind of writer I was going to be, a, a journalist, a uh, maybe go into radio or television. Um, I, I think he influenced me greatly and, and caused me to... Um, see some of the possibilities for narrative history and because uh, he was one of the great ones. Um, so I did a series of books. I did some of the books that you mentioned, uh, Ghost Soldiers, which is about the Bataan Death March in World War II 
and uh, a rescue that took place very late in the war in which the last survivors of the death march uh, were, were saved. Um, after that book, a number of people suggested to me, well, you should write another World War II book and sort of do the Ambrose groove and, and keep going in that, in that direction. And this may be partially an answer to your question. Um, I, I was done with that war after that, and I wanted to move on to something else, and I discovered that I had a, a kind of a case of historical ADD. You know, I, just, I wanted to move to a different location. I wanted to move to an entirely different era and uh, find a different um, mode, I guess, to write in. Um, so I kind of looked in my own backyard. Um, Kit Carson uh, was this character that just kept jumping out at me like a jack-in-the-box. Uh, he's everywhere in the American West. Um, there's Kit Carson Peak, Kit Carson Pass, creeks, rivers, lakes, streams. Carson City, Nevada is named after him. Um, and yet I couldn't tell you who he was. Was he a villain? Was he a hero? Was he a genocidal maniac like the Navajos say he is? Was he a folk hero, um, as I recall him being taught in the juvenile biographies that I grew up with? Um, so that sent me on um, travels that lasted almost four years. Um, I tried to go everywhere Kit Carson went, um, many thousands of miles in uh, my Volkswagen Jetta, remembering that he did all this on the back of a mule. Um, so Blood and Thunder came out, I think, in, what, 2007, and uh, it was then that I decided I wanted to go back home to Memphis and, and uh, go back home and, and spend some time there with my family, uh, who still live there. I was six years old when the King assassination happened, obviously too young to understand the nuances of what was going on or what brought King to Memphis, but I do remember the fear uh, in, running throughout the city that the city was going to tear apart. It's the first time I ever saw tanks. Uh, the first time I ever saw soldiers with bayonets. Uh, my father worked for a law firm downtown that represented King when he came on behalf of the garbage workers. And so I got an earful of all this from my dad and from his uh, colleagues at the law firm. Uh, my dad's best friend uh, ended up representing James Earl Ray in, in a matter. Um, I got an earful of all of this from him. Um, my grandfather owned a photographic studio on Beale Street in Memphis uh, that was looted and vandalized during, during the riots. I got an earful of all this from him. Uh, and, and so, you know, all this stuff swirling in my head about, about this case and, and about uh, James Earl Ray and, and, and uh, the last days of Martin Luther King's life, and I, I decided this would be a perfect next topic for me. So um, I, um, I came to the conclusion that James Earl Ray actually did it. It took me a little while to come to that conclusion. Uh, I came, I, I, I was pretty sure that he had help. I was pretty sure that there was at least a crude conspiracy involving maybe some of his family, some other criminal lowlives that he associated with, but I was not able to find credible evidence to suggest that he was part of this giant, shadowy, well-oiled, well-financed, high-level government conspiracy that I know many, many people believe in. Um, I just couldn't find evidence of it. Uh, Ray came to Memphis. Uh, he had bought a rifle. He bought a scope. He, he bought the ammunition. He checked into that flop house several hours before the assassination, and um, he peeled out of there um, one or two minutes right after the assassination in the getaway car that was described by, by eyewitnesses. And he admitted to every single one of these things. The only thing he didn't admit to, although he admitted to this too and then recanted his, his uh, admission, 
was uh, the business about pulling the trigger. <laughs> he said that that was done by a mysterious man named, anybody know his name? Raul. Raul. Um, mysterious guy that we, we don't have his, we don't have an address or a phone number or uh, an identity. We don't, ha- we don't know which nationality he was. Uh, Raul is this mysterious guy that I'm convinced, became convinced, was either uh, another one of James Earl Ray's criminal aliases or was just sort of like an imaginary friend or more likely was a kind of a composite uh, or composite of different folks that he associated with that he, perhaps he was trying to protect. Um, but uh, so once I became convinced that Ray did it, then I, I kind of went on this diff- very different journey away from Memphis to, to follow in the fugitive footsteps of James Earl Ray to figure out who this guy was, what were his habits, what were his patterns, what did he read, uh, what was he thinking in the spring of 1968. And that was a journey that took me almost as many miles as it took me to follow uh, Kid Carson. Uh, He was from southern Illinois originally. He he had lived in a succession of impoverished towns along the Mississippi River, Um, lived in St. Louis, uh, was in the Army briefly, Um, had a the rest of his career, most of, most of it behind bars for, for various, uh, mostly petty crimes, but also armed robbery and, and various other um, felonies. Um, he broke out of uh, a maximum security prison in Missouri one year before the assassination and uh, gathered some new identities, became known as Eric Galt, and uh, lived briefly in Mexico, went to Los Angeles, got into hypnosis, got a nose job, was taking bartending lessons, dancing lessons, locksmithing course, uh, was into various things. Um, uh, his sources of money, I looked into that. Not absolutely clear where he was getting his money, uh, but he certainly, uh, uh, his MO was robbing liquor stores, grocery stores. He said he was involved in fencing and smuggling schemes and perhaps doing some gun running. Um, he was a, you know, he was a criminal who was very crafty, very cunning, not nearly as stupid as I had been led to believe. Um, he was the kind of guy who did stupid things in the heat of a crime. Like, for example, in one uh, heist, he robbed, I believe it was a liquor store, and he, uh, he, he fell out of his own getaway car because he had forgot to shut, he had forgotten to shut the door. Uh, that's what I mean about doing stupid things in the heat of the crime. Uh, but this was a guy who, who escaped from not just one, but two maximum security prisons. Um, some of you may remember after the assassination, he escaped from a place called Brushy Mountain in Tennessee and was on the lam for three days until he was run down by bloodhounds. Um, so this is a very interesting guy and a much more complicated guy than I had been led to believe. He's sort of a hillbilly bumpkin guy who, who uh, was too stupid to pull off any of this stuff. Um, uh, I'm going to read a passage from the book that is the moment really just before the assassination um, in Memphis. Of course, the anniversary is tomorrow. You will see a lot of stuff on television and on on radio. There's already a lot of stuff coming out. It seems like every April 4th there's new material that emerges. Uh, There were some photographs of James Earl Ray that were released a few days ago that were unpublished. A bunch of letters from James Earl Ray that uh, have been unearthed and and, um, given to the public. I looked at those letters the last few days just to sort of see what they were about. And, and they're very interesting letters. Um, letters to his brother, letters from his brother. There's a letter to a lawyer named J.B. Stoner, who uh, uh, Ray greatly admired and who 
Ray ultimately hired as his attorney. And J.B. Stoner was one of the most notorious racists in America. He was, he was a neo-Nazi from Georgia uh, who um, uh, was later convicted in a church bombing. Um, a lot of people say Ray wasn't a racist, but you know, here he is having this very cordial correspondence with one of the most outrageous racists in America in that, in that time, who ended up, it then ended up employing him as his attorney. So uh, those letters are very interesting. But you'll see every April 4th, uh, new stuff coming out, and um, they're of course in Memphis. There are. Uh, it's almost like at Graceland every August. There's there's just this is huge conclave of people who come to try to understand Elvis, and uh, some of it is silly, but some of it is actually quite poignant. Um, the same is true at the Lorraine. There's just a lot of uh, interesting stuff, beautiful stuff, uh, also weird stuff, and of course all the conspiracy guys come as well. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a lot of sort of uh, guys in toupees, um, uh, insomniacs, um, who get together and compare notes and try to show that King was related, of course, to RFK and JFK and 9-11 and, and all the other conspiracies. Uh, Roswell, <laughs> it, it's all connected. Um, it's an interesting time in, in Memphis's, on Memphis's calendar, and if you're ever passing through uh, in April, you should definitely try to go to the Lorraine on April 4th. The passage I'm going to read, though, is, is really about the Lorraine and uh, King coming out on the balcony and lingering there and uh, what he was thinking, what he was doing in the moments just before the, uh, the assassination. King looked out over the drained swimming pool and inhaled the fresh air. The night was partly cloudy and cool, 55 degrees, and a crescent moon climbed in the sky. A slight wind blew off the Mississippi River only a few blocks to the west, but slightly hidden behind the natural rise of the bluff. All around the Lorraine stood the old cotton lofts and classing rooms, the, the drab brick warehouses of South Main's industrial grid. Off to the north, the Memphis skyscrapers rose over the city, the Gothic Steric building, the spectral white Lincoln American Tower, the Union Planners Bank with its revolving restaurant, 40 stories up. The downtown lights were just beginning to glitter. On the roof of the Peabody Hotel, the resident Mallards were happily ensconced in their mansion for the evening. Any of you been to the Peabody? Um, seen, seen the ducks that live on this mansion on the roof. As King took in the Memphis night, he leaned against the railing for several long minutes. He was completely vulnerable but King had refused a Memphis police detail, as he nearly always did. I'd feel like a, cage. I'd feel like a bird in a cage, he said. He didn't, uh, he didn't accept uh, police details often because he assumed that the cops were spying on him, and in, in this case, I'm sure they would have been. So that's one of, the, one of the several reasons he didn't. King did not believe in bodyguards, certainly not armed ones. No one in his entourage was allowed to carry a gun or nightstick or any other weapon. The very concept of arming oneself was odious to him. It violated his Gandhian principles. He wouldn't even let his children carry toy guns. In an almost mystical sense, he believed nonviolence was a more potent force for self-protection than any weapon. He understood the threats that were about, but refused to let them alter the way he lived. So no one was on the balcony to shield his movements, to shepherd him along, to survey the sight lines and vantage points and anticipate the worst.
The Cadillac was still idling down below. The various members of the party were edging toward their cars. King did not move from his perch on the balcony. He seemed transfixed by the evening, enchanted by the scene in the courtyard. Andy Young was shadowboxing with James Orange, a wild, bearish man as big as an NFL linebacker. Now you be careful with preachers half your size, King called out to Orange. Jackson, standing beside the Cadillac, introduced King to Ben Branch, a saxophonist and band leader originally from Memphis who had come down from Chicago to play music in support of the sanitation workers. He and his band had a gig that night over at Mason Temple where King and his entourage were headed after the Kyle's dinner. Oh, yes, King said. He's my man. How are you, Ben? Glad to see you, Doc, Branch called up. Ben, I want you to sing that song for me tonight. I want you to sing, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. King had loved the great gospel standard for years. It was a tragic, sweet song written in the depths of the Depression by a black composer named Thomas Dorsey after his wife and baby died in childbirth. When the darkness appears and the night draws near and the day is past and gone, at the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand. I want you to sing it like you've never sung it before, King told Branch. Sing it real pretty. I sure will, Doc. Solomon Jones hopped out of the caddy and yelled up to King. It's getting chilly, said Jones. I think you'll need a top coat. Okay, Jonesy, King answered. You really know how to take good care of me. He fished for a pack of Salem menthols from his pocket and grasped a cigarette in his hand. He straightened up and stepped back from the railing. He was just turning, perhaps to retrieve his cashmere top coat inside the room, when a ragged belch rang out over the parapets. How many of you have been to the Lorraine? A lot of you? Since it's been this, since it's been this uh, National Civil Rights Museum. Uh, I recommend everyone in this room go. It's, it's an extraordinary place. It's, it's one of the few places I've ever been to that's both kind of, it's a museum and a tourist attraction and all that, but it's also a shrine. It, it sort of serves all these purposes. And uh, it's, um, it's a place where black, black and white Memphians gather to kind of still figure out... Um, what this moment meant you know, to our history and specifically to Memphis's history. Um, I'd like to hear from you. This is the part that I always enjoy the most is hearing from... Uh, how, many, how many of you have read this book? I'm curious, a lot of you. Um, I, I don't want to just talk about this book, but you know, narrative history in general, uh, all three of my books, and, and of course, Hellhound, which just came out this week in paperback. I am in the middle of a tour. Uh, that's what I'm talking about now, but... Uh, we don't have to just be focused strictly on that. I, I think that King has become, of course, uh, um, he's become enshrined in the national pantheon of, of saints. And uh, we don't really know how to deal with saints um, because they're not real people. They're not flesh and blood. I think people forget that he preached a very uncomfortable gospel uh, at times. What he was saying was often uh, very controversial, especially in those last years um, when he embarked on the Poor People's Campaign and talked about uh, really attacking the problem of poverty, multi-generational systemic poverty, um, using all the resources of government to do it. And he was talking about a, essentially you know, a radical redistribution of wealth. Um, this was very controversial. Um, he was also a very fierce, very early, very eloquent critic of the Vietnam War. Uh, this lost him a lot of allies um, in Washington and, and all over the country. Um, 
he was a much more radical and much more um, creative uh, and much much more um, uh, militant um, uh, thinker and social critic uh, than I think our sanitized version of King allow, allows us to, to, to remember. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's just, that partly that's just what happens when we enshrine our heroes. I mean, you know, I don't think we really analyze what Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson was really like in all his complexity, or Lincoln, or, or, or uh, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's the sort of the hallmark version of our, of our national heroes, and then there's those who actually break open the books and read about these people and make the effort to figure out just how complex they, they actually were. Um, I, I became really interested in this Martin Luther King, too, because it's very different from, you know, the one that I, I think for many of us, King is enshrined. He's uh, frozen in uh, time, August of, 19, of 1963, dream speech. Um, uh, a great orator at a triumphant moment in his life. But in fact, by the spring of 1968, King, uh, King was exhausted. He had been doing this for a long time. He was uh, not sleeping well. He was um, getting all these death threats and had been for years. He uh, was smoking and drinking, and he did have mistresses, and his marriage was, was on the rocks. And uh, he talked about giving it all up and going on a sabbatical and doing something different. Uh, he, was, he was beat, and uh, he did not have a death wish, but he was certainly very much aware of all these threats that were out there. And he talked about them with his, uh, his group and, and with his family and... Uh, you know, was prepared, I think, for the moment to come at any time. Um, which, which makes standing out on the balcony like he was, in the, as he was in the passage that I just read, uh, seem all the more amazing that he was living, you know, he knew, the, he knew the threats and yet he was willing to, 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 he wanted to live his life the way he wanted to. And I think there were times when uh, his staff was uh, shocked at how, um, how vulnerable he was, how exposed he was. And, um, tried to move him from, from danger, but at other times they just, they just gave up almost. They just said, he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, I don't know if I've addressed your, your question, but those are some, some of my thoughts about King in terms of being more radical, more militant, um, and more preaching a, a message that's a little more uncomfortable for, um, for certain parts of the body politic today. Certainly conservatives uh, who, who really analyze what he was saying um, uh, w- would find him uh, find his message a lot more controversial. What was going on at the Lorraine that day was that they were they were getting ready for um, to do a march on, on Beale Street. They wanted to redo the the march that had gone that had turned violent on March 28th. Uh, they, King felt that he had to prove to the nation and to the world that he could put on um, uh, c- could do this march and do it nonviolently. And if he couldn't do this in Memphis, then certainly. He the whole pe- poor people's campaign in Washington was was not going to work, um, so that day they had been doing um, they being a, a bunch of the local ministers in Memphis like Jim Lawson and um, uh, Billy Kyles and others had been doing sort of these uh, sessions where they were uh, coaching uh, young folks in Memphis about how to do a march. They wanted marshals, uh, kind of how do you the discipline of doing a nonviolent March, and they were in negotiations with a local group called the Invaders, who were kind of a black power group, um, 
loosely modeled perhaps after the Black Panthers. Uh, they were they were pretty young and a little, um, I'd say a lot of disagreement amongst themselves about what they were trying to do and what they were trying to be. Um, and they actually got into a big fight with um, King's group. Uh, they wanted to extort money out of King's group. They, they had this idea that King was just super rich or something, and they wanted $30,000 uh, as an assurance that there wouldn't be violence in, in, in Beale Street. So there was a lot of bickering going on. It was not a very pleasant day for a lot of folks. And I believe that person you're speaking of was was um, there as part of this sort of tutorial on how to run a march. Um, there was another guy up there um, who's kneeling over King, um, trying to help him, who was an um, undercover cop um, who, had in, who had invaded the invaders. Uh, and sp- he was spying on the invaders. He was, uh, he was so successful at it that they, they called him the, the minister, the, the invaders called him the minister of transportation. Uh, because he's the only one that had a car. Um, so, so, but uh, he was the first one on the scene and put that towel on him, and then Abernathy came out, and uh, that photograph, of course, that you're mentioning is uh, the picture where the police came and asked, you know, where'd this shot come from, and they all sort of pointed up and to the right um, in the direction of, of the uh, rooming house. So, yeah, very much an iconic photograph. What I think is the fundamental quality of James Earl Ray, which is that he is a person with an incoherent identity. He had, during the course of his criminal career, 39 different aliases. Some of them were just names, scraps of names, you know, half-remembered names. Sometimes they were identities that he had ID for, that he had uh, birth certificates for, and, and driver's licenses, and um, some of the identity, identities he inhabited, he kind of changed the way he acted and talked and uh, dressed, and uh, that was one of the reasons he got that um, nose job. And um, he, sometimes he wore glasses, sometimes he didn't. Um, he, kind of had, um, he kind of had the beginning of what I would call a multi- multiple par- uh, personality disorder. Um, so that was one of the reasons. I kind of wanted to underscore... Um, that's incoherent identity. On a fundamental level, I think this was a guy who didn't know who he was. And uh, he sometimes got in trouble when the various identities uh, were exposed uh, to each other. <laughs> one one uh, particular case was once he was captured in London, 65 days after the assassination, um, it was clear there was going to be an extradition hearing, and he was assigned a barrister in London. And this guy um, wanted to help his client. And Ray uh, kept insisting that he wasn't Ray, that his name was George Ramon Snade. Uh, that was his ID, and that was what his passport said. He called himself Sir Snade sometimes. He said, they got me mixed up with this guy named James Earl Ray. I don't know who he is. I have no idea. Um, but could you help me? Uh, and and the, the barrister said, yes, uh, i that's what I'm here for. I'm here to help you. How can I, how can I help you? He said, uh, yeah, I would like for you to contact my brother in the United States. And uh, the barrister said, absolutely, sure. What, what's his name? Uh, his name is Jerry Ray. <laughs> and um, he did this uh, every now and then. There would be situations like this where the various identities would sort of meet each other. Um, another reason that I did it was that um, I wanted the reader to learn his true identity at the moment when, at the moment in the story when the FBI learned it, Uh, and in the moment in the story when the nation learned it. 
Um, because for the first two weeks after the assassination, the FBI was looking for a guy named John Willard. That was the name he gave to the flop house. Um, they found the gun and traced it back to a gun shop in uh, Birmingham and found that it had been purchased by a guy named Harvey Lohmeyer. So they were looking for now two people, John Willard, Harvey Lohmeyer. And then uh, they finally found the car that was abandoned in Atlanta, a white Mustang. And it was listed in the name of Eric Galt. So that's three names they're looking for. They thought it was a conspiracy of three rednecks in the South or something. They weren't really sure. Uh, they began to kind of do the handwriting analysis and the physical descriptions in various places and began to realize that all three of these guys looked alike. And uh, they began to suspect that maybe they were looking for one guy who was using different aliases. But it really wasn't until th nearly three weeks after the assassination that they figured out that it was James Earl Ray. And this is, um, I hate to give certain plot twists here because I think most of us have forgotten some of these details, but um, basically the FBI started doing this hand analysis uh, where they looked at the, the, the fingerprints that had been left on the objects um, that were found outside the flop house and comparing those fingerprints to the fingerprints of every known fugitive that were on file in, in, the, in Washington at the FBI. And uh, it took them about two and a half, three weeks before they, they found this match uh, and found out that, that they were a direct match, and it was the fingerprints of an escaped convict from Missouri named James Earl Ray. So suddenly, they're looking for a completely, you know, for a fourth name. Uh, and, and I think I underscored that also just to show just how hard... Um, this search was. I think people assumed that the FBI, because J. Edgar Hoover hated King, uh, was probably dragging its feet and doing, doing everything it could to, to not solve this crime, when in fact, you know, how, how difficult could it be? They're looking for James Earl Ray. I mean, it can't be that hard, right? Well, they didn't know they were looking for James Earl Ray. So I kind of uh, withheld his identity until the moment when the FBI finally figures it out. Uh, to, it, it creates a little bit of suspense, it also, um, I think, um, again, sort of underscores this, um, this personality that has sort of onion, onion skin, la you know, layer after layer after layer of identity until you kind of peel back and finally figure out who, who he really is. And when you finally figure out who he really is, you still don't know what he is <laughs> because he's just such a mixed-up guy. And by that point in the story, he's actually changed his name again. He's now Paul Bridgman. He's in Canada, and he's changed his name to Paul Bridgman, and then he becomes Ramon Snaid. He also takes up a few other names along the way. So um, identity is a big part of, I think, and a big theme of, of, the, of this story. Just about everything you've heard about the FBI and its sort of hatred of King and trying to smear the movement and eavesdrop, I mean, it's all true. It's all true. And uh, um, it certainly is one of the things that fuels suspicions, understandably, and, and certainly fuels uh, the notion of, of some sort of larger conspiracy. If, they, if they're willing to send him a note telling him to, they ought to commit suicide, then why wouldn't they just go a little farther and hire someone to, to kill him? Um, okay. And, so, and then, that, that leads to, another, to the other idea that they either hired J, J, uh, James Earl Ray to do this or they hired someone else and they used him as a patsy or a fall guy or something like that. And I certainly considered all that. I looked at the possible evidence for that, and I just didn't find any. Um, those are loose ends, but they're, that, the fact that they're loose ends doesn't, doesn't mean that 
that's proof positive that there's this giant conspiracy. Um, as far as the King family and believing his innocence, um, I, I don't know if that's true of every member of the King family, but certainly Dexter King did go to prison shortly before, uh, uh, go to the prison where Ray was incarcerated shortly before he died and uh, shook his hand and said, I believe you. I believe you're innocent. And um, based on what, I don't know. I don't know if Dexter King has read, you know, all the evidence. I don't know what, what he knows or how he arrived at that conclusion, and I certainly can't speak for him. Um, I, I find it shocking that he shook the man's hand because no matter what happens, no matter what you think, uh, Ray was there. Ray never denied being there. Uh, Ray never denied buying the gun and the scope and the, and the ammunition and the binoculars that were purchased one hour before the assassination. And he never denied that that was his car. He never denied that he peeled out of there one minute afterwards. Um, he just said some other guy named Raul pulled the trigger. Um, so to me, you're shaking the hand of a guy that the very, very, very minimum was an active part of a conspiracy to kill your father. I, I, you know, I just I find it shocking, and a lot of historians... Uh, and a lot of people who studied this case found it just unbelievable. Um, one of the possible reasons why he did that, that has been suggested, was that James Earl Ray was suffering from uh, uh, cirrhosis. Uh, he had hepatitis, and he wanted a liver transplant. And the thing the King family wanted more than anything at that point, I, I think very understandably, was uh, a trial, a real trial that would, you know, that would actually occur because, you know, Ray was convicted a as a result of a plea bargain. Um, you can't have a trial unless you have Ray, and you can't have Ray unless you get a liver transplant. And I think that they were actively campaigning uh, to get him uh, higher on the list to have a liver transplant. And uh, certainly I think this was one thing that they were thinking of is just like anything to get this guy on the stand, to find out the real story, what really happened. Um, Apart from that, I can't speculate about why the, why the King family, uh, members of the King family, uh, believed him. Because, I mean, this is a guy that, I mean, he lied all the, all the way to his grave. I mean, he just lied, lied, lied. He, you know, if you read his testimony before the House, commit, House Select Committee, you know, it's, he lies within a minute or two of the, of the initial statement. He'll, he'll change his story, and he'll change his story again, and change it a third time, and a fourth, and a fifth, uh, to the point where it just grinds you down. The guys who were interrogating him just plain wore them out. They just gave up. And I always describe him as a squid, um, someone who sort of squirts out this cloud of, of, of murky ink. And, you know, this is kind of his defense mechanism. You can't figure out what is he really saying. What do you, who are you? What are you? What's your name? What, where were you when this happened? Uh, and he, uh, by the time you think you figured him out and the cloud begins to dissipate, he's gone. He's changed his name, he's changed his location, he's changed his story. And that was sort of his M.O. throughout his whole career. And it's one of the reasons he's such a kind of a dissatisfying or unsatisfying um, assassin. Um, I mean, I think almost all of our political assassins are mixed up, disturbed, troubled. Uh, but uh, they aren't, I don't think, often as, as quite as mixed up and strange. And uh, sort of uh, a muddle of half-truths and half-lies and... Um, you know, he had his entire life in prison after the assassination to tell us what really happened. Who really was Raul? Who was this guy that you f supposedly followed around for a, an entire year? Where is he? You know, what, give us a name, give us a physical description, or on his deathbed. You know, give us at least the the true story just before you head on in, into the 
the Huskiao in the sky. Um, you know, he didn't do that. Uh, he went to his grave with this big question mark, and it's it's very uh, it's very troubling. Yeah, I mean, this would be a good good time to sort of look at the way a conspiracy tuned person might think of that as like, well, there's proof that the FBI wanted to groom an assassin to go kill Martin Luther King. Uh, well, you know, to me, it's proof that he had help. Somebody in that prison was helping him. He had an accomplice. He probably had some prison buddies, uh, maybe someone who owed him something, maybe some, one of those prison bakers that he worked with every day for years uh, did him a favor. Uh, they never were able to figure out who it was. They certainly narrowed it down to about 10 people it could have been. Um, but um, I don't know. There's no question he had help. And the other thing is, uh, after, after he escaped, a few days later, he was picked up by his brother, um, John Ray. Um, this is the same guy who, the day before the breakout, had, had visited his brother in prison. Um, so, you know, his brothers come up throughout this narrative over and over and over again. He's clearly getting help from, from uh, his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. Um, or Jerry and John Larry are their names. And um, they're both felons themselves. The day before um, Ray escaped from Brushy Mountain Prison in Tennessee, he was visited by his brother Jerry. His brother Jerry ended up being a bodyguard for that neo-Nazi uh, lawyer I told you about, J.B. Stoner. Um, you know, this family, uh, these were hardcore racists. These were uh, felons, uh, and they trusted each other. And I think that when we talk about a conspiracy, no matter how high level you want to go, I, I think the, the Ray brothers are, are, are definitely involved. Um, but anyway, that's what I make of that. You know, somebody definitely helped him. It's probably just somebody in, in prison with him that he, maybe he paid off in some way. Mm -hmm. I think that um, the FBI tried for years to smear King and ruin him and do all this sort of COINTELPRO stuff. And look at, look at how successful they were in the end. It, not very. Uh, King is a now a national holiday. Uh, uh, he, never, he never did kill himself like they wanted him to. The papers never took the bait, never printed this stuff. Um, they're not good at that stuff. What the FBI is good at is solving crimes. And um, once they em were embarked on, on that task, which was the immediate task was not so much to solve the crime, but to find the guy. You know, find, this was a fugitive case. Find, out, you know, find the guy who was responsible for the killing. Then let someone else solve the you know nitty gritty of, of the murder itself. They're really good at that, and yes, I think to answer your question, they they did a tremendous job. I mean, when you get into the files and you see all the thousands and thousands and thousands of tips that were coming in, that were all f almost always false tips, and every lead that was pursued and every stone that was turned over, uh, you see all the you know many millions of dollars uh, that was spent on this in at every field office in the entire country. Um, and the ingenuity, the meticulousness, uh, and the kind of nitty-gritty level that this gets to, like fibers and fingerprints and the, the housing of, of, a, of a radio that, that, that was found that was his uh, prison radio that had this little microscopic number on it, and the, this laundry tag that was stamped on the inseam of some boxer shorts that lead them to a laundromat in Los Angeles and then finally to a dancing school and uh, then they get an address and they get a number and they, which leads, leads them to a locksmithing um, class in New Jersey and uh, then finally to a rooming house in Atlanta where he had uh, been living shortly before the assassination. You realize how, how, 
complicated this investigation was, how many, how many uh, puzzle pieces there were, and how good they were at it. Of course, in the end, they didn't catch him. Scotland Yard ca caught him. Because um, by that point, he'd already made it to, to, to Canada and then finally to, to England. Uh, and it ended up involving, and of course, these folks don't get as much credit, uh, the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police, the Federales in Mexico, the National Police in Portugal, and, and, and uh, Scotland Yard. So you've got to give the FBI a lot of credit, but you also have to give these folks a lot of credit, too. Um, there was just so many man hours devoted to this. And, uh, and, and with all that, if he'd gotten on that plane at London Heathrow, uh, he probably would have gotten away with his crime. Um, he was on his way to Rhodesia, where he wanted to become a mercenary soldier, and they had no extradition treaty with the United States, and I think he might have gotten away with this. And uh, so there was a lot of near misses and a lot of sort of gotchas and a lot of moments of luck, but um, in the end it was, it was hard work and, um, and uh, on the part of a lot of people all over the country that, that finally caught him. You know, writing a book is really hard. There's a lot of left turns. There's a lot of snags that you hit. There's a lot of moments where you kind of run out of gas and, and inspiration. And you've got to have some strong, powerful, kind of overriding, um, compelling reason for doing something like this. And for me, it was to kind of revisit my hometown, to sort of understand my hometown, to understand all the stories that I had heard, to sort of cross-examine the uh, memories of my, fam my own family and uh, people I knew. And Memphis is very much a character in this story. The story keeps coming back to Memphis. Uh, Memphis is an amazing city with this amazing uh, uh, kind of gothic uh, history. It's the capital of the Mississippi Delta and the blues and uh, Stax records and Sun records. And it's a place that um, is sort of um, backwards in many ways, but it's sort of ahead of the curve musically. And, and, and um, so much of the music scene in Memphis has been based on racial cross-pollination, basically. Uh, uh, so I just think it was very ironic that here's, you know, the, the Martin Luther King... Uh, traveled all over the country. He could have been killed anywhere, but he was killed in this city that had this really deep, heavy racial um, uh, and, and biblical um, resonance. Uh, Memphis on the Nile, M Memphis on the Mississippi. Um, you know, the night before he was killed, King invoked uh, those biblical images of, of Egypt and... and uh, and break, you know, breaking out, and 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 that he he might not get there with you, but you know he, he was going to go to the mountaintop, and um, so I think that's the answer to your question. It's really just kind of that love of and fascination for, and maybe a little bit of um, because anybody who knows and loves the city can also can can also hate it uh, with equal passion. Um, that that strong feeling is what uh, prompted me to write the book and and kept me uh, going uh, through it. King came to Los Angeles when Ray was uh, staying there. And at that point, Ray was volunteering for the Wallace for President campaign and uh, trying to figure out what he was going to do next. He was dabbling with the idea of becoming a porn director. Uh, King comes out there, gives, some, gives a talk in, um, promoting the Poor People's Campaign, and something set Ray off. Something King said in that speech must have set him off because the very next day he put in a change of address form for Atlanta, Georgia, and he gets in his car and he drives to Atlanta, uh, a city he has absolutely no connection to. He's never been there. Uh, at least he said he had never been there. You know, this is Martin Luther King's hometown. What's he doing there? And at that point, it's pretty clear that he, he goes where King is. He goes to Selma when King's there. He, um, he 
uh, a map is found in his flop house that has a, the address of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference circled, uh, King's house address circled. Um, so you know, he's clearly, you know, then he goes and buys this gun in Birmingham and then goes to Memphis when he found, finds out that King is going back to Memphis. So I'm, I've moved on to a completely different era, which is this one is about um, the um, very first American-led attempt on the North Pole. Um, happened in 1879, long before Shackleton, long before uh, Scott, uh, long before Perry. Um, it was uh, kind of the, somewhat of the early days of American exploration. It was uh, led by the U.S. Navy, but it was financed by a very eccentric, wealthy um, American newspaper publisher named James Gordon Bennett. And uh, it's a Gilded Age exploration tale that, uh, I mean, if it was a movie, I guess the tagline would be something like, they went north, but it went horribly south. Because uh, it has all the classic elements, you know, cannibalism, uh, scurvy, you know, good times. Um, but there are survivors, so it, it's, a happy, it's got a happy ending. Uh, okay, one last one. Let's, let's have her. Um, Hi there. Did you, were you able to talk to uh, Ray's brothers during your research? Uh, I tried. Um, one of them said he wouldn't talk to me because he had his own book coming out which did come out. It's called Truth at Last. And uh, it advances the theory that Ray had a chip implanted in his head by the CIA in the 50s, and he was groomed to be an assassin. Um, and, well, it's sort of the Manchurian candidate idea. It's an interesting book, though. In one of the passages, he says that he was in West Memphis um, on April 3rd. Uh, West Memphis is just across the river from Memphis. And um, if that's really true, then, I mean, it just sort of goes to show, I think, what and sort of underscore a lot of people's theories that he was indeed, he, he and perhaps his other brother, Jerry, were part of the um, a, a, of some sort of plot. Um, the other brother, um, I was working at the time on a documentary, and uh, uh, the documentary was able to interview him. Um, I couldn't get to the interview, but the thing, what we learned was uh, he, the interview would, broke off very quickly because Jerry needed $500 of, uh, for bourbon. Uh, in order to conduct the interview, and so it just didn't go anywhere, and th what little tape they got was not u even uh, useful. Um, so, kind of tough. I mean, I'm always curious what people think, but um, you know, I'm sure they don't like this book if they've read it at all. Um, but you know, they're still around, and there are you know some other members of the Ray family that um, distant cousins and so forth that that I have heard from. I did hear from Ray's wife. Um, uh, I mean, I. I had interviewed her before the book came out, but um, Ray, Ray was briefly married in prison. Um, you know, I don't know what it is about, like, maximum security prison inmates and death row inmates, but they're, they're very attractive to certain, a certain kind of woman. And this woman uh, married him briefly, and uh, she, um, I think they had some conjugal visits and all that, but then uh, at a certain point, um, he told her that he killed Martin Luther King. And she was shocked because she was a big King fan. And uh, so she very shortly after that divorced him. Um, so, you know, it's like um, people come out of the woodwork in interesting ways on book tours. And I met her and I met, um, in one, one day in St. Louis, I met a, a guy who had served prison uh, sentence with Ray. I met a lawyer who had represented Ray. And I met the cop who had arrested Ray. All, all like back to back, and it was it was great. It's like where were all you guys when I was doing the research for the book? <laughs> Thanks so much for your question. It's been a, a real pleasure. <laughs>